Our sermon text is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and you can, uh, sorry, yeah, and that's on page 1050, if you want to follow along. John chapter 2. And uh, I want to give a little introduction about this passage. You may recognize it instantly. It's about, and Victoria gave us a hint, it is about Jesus' first miracle, which is the transformation of water into wine at a place called Cana. And this is in Galilee. It's not far from Nazareth. It's not far from Jesus' hometown. And our trip to Israel last year, we went there, and there's a little church there. And, of course, there's a, they think that's the spot where this all happened. And people actually, there's a quite, a quite a going sort of almost a business of they host weddings there. People get, go there to get married. People go there to get engaged. Um, and so it's kind of the love capital of northern Israel, for Christians at least. But it's a real place. You can go there. And um, we have, I just want to highlight one aspect of this story before we read it, which is in the story we hear that there were these six stone jars that were sort of nearby when Jesus was having this conversation with his mother about what to do about the lack of wine. The wine had run out. And um, these, it says in our text that these were jars that were to be used for purification rituals. They would be filled with water, and then people would wash with them. And so I want you to kind of rewind a little bit back to Advent when we talked about the Qumran community, the Essene community, where they had built these sort of deep basins in which they could bathe themselves. And bathing yourself as a, in a ritual way was very important to the Jews at that time. Because you could be unclean for any number of reasons. If you had touched something that was unclean, you were unclean, you needed to bathe. And you needed to become clean again so that you could re-enter community, so you could be around other people. But also you needed to bathe in this ritual manner so that you could approach the place of worship, so that you could come near to God, whether it be the temple or the synagogue or anything else. And so um, these jars were used not for drinking water, but for washing water. And they were a sign, really, of the old law, Levitical law, of using water to wash yourselves from uncleanness so that you could become clean and presentable to worship and to community. So remember that detail, because it's going to figure in later as we go through this. So let's go to our reading. It's from John chapter 2, and I'll start with verse 1. It goes like this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, 
everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, and we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to add a little prayer request for myself. I was raking a lot of leaves in the yard yesterday, and so my allergies are like blah. And so I feel like my head's in a bubble. If I sound that way, you now, now you know why. But if I don't sound that way, I'm the only one experiencing it. So I'm, I'm struggling a little bit more than usual to put one word at the end of another. So bear with me, okay? That's just how I feel. But if it doesn't come through, well, praise God. So, um, so what's this story about? I'm just going to talk about this real quickly. What is this story about? Well, it's about transformation. It's about a transformation of a substance. Of course, it's a lot more than that. On the simplest level, it's the transformation of water into wine, which we know is impossible, right? It's, for us, it's a much more convoluted process. You turn water into irrigation, and that maybe grows some grapes, and you trample them, and then you wait, then you have wine. Jesus is like, much faster, right? And of course, there are always these people all throughout history, we call them alchemists, and they were interested in the transformation of substances too, that they thought they could transform one kind of matter into another kind of matter, and of course, the one they were most interested in was in turning anything that they could think of into gold, right? These are the alchemists. But that doesn't work, all right? Only on a sort of on a, a physical level deep down, I mean, you could maybe because of some reactions, some, some matter is transformed from some kinds of, of, to other kinds of matter. Probably the most amazing one is that in the core of our sun, hydrogen gets transformed into helium. It's wonderful, you know? Uh, it's called fusion, nuclear fusion. And so actually one kind of element is created out of an, another kind of element. So that's miraculous. But this miracle is quite unique of all the miracles. An actual change from water, which is just H2O, into wine, which is H2O, plus several other kinds of sort of hydrocarbons and things like that, some carbon, some hydrogen, some uh, other things, nitrogen. Well, this is pretty good. I don't, we, we, can you imagine somebody like a scientist going back in time and going, measuring the wine and saying, hmm, how did he do that? No, it's a miracle. It's a miracle, and there's, there's a lot to this miracle. We see it, the people there saw it just as a, a physical miracle. And the, really, the miracle was that Jesus saved the party. I mean, that's one of the narratives here. Is this party was about to have a really bad ending. Um, weddings could be several days long. Back then, the wedding feast itself could be quite long. And it was such an important event in the life of a town. It, it was the union of two families. It was a contractual thing. Land was involved. There was just, and you had to go. You had to go, and you kind of had to invite everybody who was in your sphere. Uh, you don't want to slight anybody but not inviting them. You don't want to not accept the invitation if you were invited. And so you have parables about people who would not come to a wedding a feast that they were invited to and what an insult that was. So you get the sense then that weddings were really big social events, but they were much bigger than just a social event. It was just a real a big uh, civic event, really. It was about the life of the community. 
So to miss it, you wouldn't want to miss it. And for it to run out of wine halfway through would be a loss of face, it would be a loss of honor, it would be disastrous. So the other side of it is that Jesus transforms water into wine, but he also transforms a terrible party into an amazing party, which is good. So he saves the wedding. He saves this groom and his family from a huge embarrassment. Well, that's great too. But I want you to look sort of past that, and we're going to go back to these stone jars. This is also a spiritual transformation. And I want you to kind of imagine a little bit, because here you have these stone jars filled with water. These are used for ritual purification under the old law, the Levitical law. And Jesus is using them and transforming them into wine. And then you have to read further in John. You have to read the whole gospel at once, almost, to kind of get this thing to pull together is that the wine is a symbol of the passion of Jesus Christ. It's his life and his blood poured out as a new covenant. So the old covenant of washing under the Levitical law is replaced or transformed into a new covenant that's based on his sacrifice and his obedience to God. Do you see how there's a spiritual thing going on? And this signpost, what... what makes it all linked together is that he used these particular six stone jars. If he had used some other kind of container, this wouldn't work. But details are in here for a reason. It's not, you know, like in a movie, in the plot. You get some kind of strange detail, and you're like, well, that probably doesn't mean anything. But a good storyteller leaves that strange detail in there because later on, it, oh, that's why. The containers were ritual purification containers. And what was in them was transformed into the new thing. So somebody reading at the end where Jesus is at table with his disciples and he talks about the, blind, the wine and him going to the cross. And then he goes to the cross and he's raised again and this covenant comes about. People would go, ah, isn't this amazing? So in this first miracle, is encapsulated the last miracle, the resurrection, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It all kind of comes together. And so everything, and I would, this is very interesting, almost all of John is about transformation. I think we should actually probably have a sermon series on John. It's amazing, all right? Uh, but especially the first four chapters, of John are very much about transformation of various kinds. And I'm going to give you just a quick overview of all those things. So in chapter 1, we have some amazing transformation where it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. We're going to come back to that word. The Greek word is doxa. We'll come back to that. So in chapter 1, we have the Word becoming flesh. That's a whole other topic, but these are actually related things. These are physical things with spiritual importance. In chapter 2, the water is converted into wine. And also in chapter 2, we find that Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem and he pushes out all these people who are treating it as a marketplace. And he says, this is my father's house. You can't do this here. And, and the, the people say, by what authority or what, why are you doing this? By what authority do you have to do this? And this is what he says in John chapter 2, if you want to follow along, in verse 19. 
he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? Now, look at verse 21. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. He was talking about his own death and resurrection. Even in chapter 2, right? There's always pointing to the end. And so, um, one, here's another transformation. The temple of stone is being transformed into the temple of the body of Jesus. It's a change in where and how people were asked to worship. The old temple made of stone is a place of limited access to God. You have just a few people who can go into the holiest place. In fact, only men could go into a certain portion of that. And only Jews could go into a certain portion around that. And only way on the outside were Gentiles. And then way on the outside of that were people who were unclean or crippled or lame or all sorts of things that they couldn't even come close. And that all gets transformed into a new temple, which is the body of Jesus. It's himself. Does that make sense? This is really fascinating. That the, this, this temple, which they had spent a lot of money on, and it actually ended up getting destroyed, Jesus is saying, I, I can tear this down and I can replace it. And he's saying, I can replace it with myself. And access to God has then been transformed from limited and exclusive to something that's for everyone. So that anyone can touch Jesus, and Jesus touches anyone, and he touches unclean people, and he touches women, and he touches Gentiles, and he challenges the powerful. He makes this level access to himself. It's a transformation in how worship takes place. Then chapter 3, we find out about having to be born again. It's a real transformation in how we understand ourselves. And finally, chapter 4, I won't go into this too much detail, but there's a story of the woman at the well, and they have an argument about where God's temple really should be. And she's like, it should be up here on Mount Gerizim, which, by the way, we went to on our trip to Israel. So listen, this is a little mini like uh, commercial. We might go to Israel again. Think about if you want to go to Israel again, maybe in a year or two, okay? To see all these places, it's amazing. But she says, this is where we worship. And Jesus says, well, you're wrong. We really do worship in Jerusalem. But he says, the time will come when we'll worship on neither of these mountains, but we'll worship in spirit and in truth. So it's a transformation about our mode of worship and our place of worship. It's centered around him and his person, not on some particular place. So do you see how in the first four chapters of John, at least, but you could keep going, and we're going to find another one a little bit later, that this is all about transformation of one thing into another, water into wine and more. So. I want to say two things about this particular miracle. One is that it's among other miracles in that it shows that he has some control over the physical world. You know, he can heal people who are sick. He can command the weather to do this or that. I like that. You know, this is really good. But I think on a metaphysical level, this is probably the most interesting and amazing miracle because he actually changes one kind of substance into another. And it says here, and if you go back to verse 11, it says this, this is the first of his miraculous signs 
And Jesus performed it, and he, he revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. And, and this word sign, the Greek word for that is semeon. Sometimes it's translated as miracles. Sometimes it's translated as signs or, or works. Um, but in, particularly in the Gospel of John, whenever you see this word, it's loaded with this meaning, not only that it was a, a miracle, something miraculous happened, but it had a purpose. It was loaded with purpose. And the purpose always of the signs in John's gospel is that people would come to faith. This is the other theme that you'll find in John, is that, you know, it starts in John chapter 1. We've seen this. We've touched it. We testify to it. We're all about testifying what we've seen so you can believe. And at the end of John, he says, this, all these things were written so that you might come to believe, right? So the signs in John always have a purpose. And the purpose is revealed right here in verse 11. It says, he thus revealed his glory. So the sign was, the purpose of the sign was to show that he had glory, that he had God's authority, power, and personhood in and within himself. And then the very last part of verse 11, and his disciples put their faith in him. And you almost get the sense that up till now, they were following him because they were fascinated by him, interested in him. Maybe some of them were friends with him from childhood. We, you know, there's a lot of, and not all of them had probably been called yet at this point. But it was at this point that something changed in them. They went from just sort of following him out of interest to saying, we've just seen the glory of God. Now we believe in him. That's a change. That's actually a transformation too. And so actually, I think the most amazing transformation is the change in the disciples. A transformation from some kind of agnosticism to faith. That's a big deal, right? That's a big transformation. Um, and so I would actually say, since this is the first miracle of the Bible, I kind of am tempted to say, and your story may be different, that this is the first miracle in your life is that you came to faith from not having faith. That's a miracle. That's a transformation that God is in control of and directing. And I'm really pleased. I, I kind of just always assumed that this would happen, but all of our children, and Chris has been very instrumental in this, all of our children have said to us that they believe in Jesus, which is great, you know? And I, I, I just kind of like, I just assumed that that was going to happen, you know, because why wouldn't it, you know? Um, and I didn't give it enough thought. And here is my own family. But I wish I had thought more about it, like, when our children said these things, what a miracle that I was blessed to witness in that moment. Can you think of it that way? That a child saying, yeah, I believe. An adult saying, I believe. This is one of the greatest and the first miracles that happened in their lives. Now, other miracles could have taken place before that, but I think it's one of the biggest. It's a transformative miracle. So we're talking about transformation. And I, I think we need to ask, what, what good is that now for us? We have a God who likes to transform water into wine, unbelief into belief, Access, he wants to transform the way we worship, the way we approach God. And so, 
maybe you're contemplating right now that there must be or might be some change that you wish would occur in your own life. If not, great. I mean, hooray for you. <laughs> Everything's great. But if you think there's some change that God wants to make in your life or that you want to make in your life and you're stuck, right? You don't know how this thing is going to come about. I think it's good for us to remember that God is in the transformation business. He can turn this water of our old life into the wine of new life. He can save the party. He can transform brokenness into joy. I mean, he can do all sorts of things. Um, and I'll tell you, I, I shared this with our adult forum a little bit this morning, but for the last month or so, I've been in low-level I, I, low despair and anxiety. And, and it's not debilitating. I can still get up in the morning and put my socks on. It's no problem. But it's just been weighing on me, and it, it's about the world. I don't know how else to say it. It just feels like the world is totally messed up. And we watched a documentary about poor children in Bangladesh, and that sure did not help. I mean, it was heartbreaking how little they have. And they live right by the train tracks, and the train goes by, and it passes this far from their tent every 10 minutes, and they're grabbing their kids, and the kids are going around collecting plastic bits from dumps and train tracks and trying to turn them in for just a little bit of money so their family can keep eating. And that's just one story. Multiply that times a billion. What's going on in this world? And just all the nations of this world just seem to be at odds with each other. And, and maybe you feel it like I feel it. And, and I've been asking myself, what's going on? Why do I, why is this affecting me in this way? And it's been changing lately. I'll be, you know, this is the good news, is that I'm seeing some transformation in myself where I just say, well, God is powerful. God is more in control of any of this than I can be. I, I, and I don't have any control over what the nations of this world do with each other. I have zero control over that. And so there's some wisdom in not obsessing about things that you can't control. It's sort of like the, the serenity prayer, right? Grant me the courage, etc. But I've been finding more peace lately because I've said to myself, well, God can change this, and God will change this when God chooses to change this. Your job right now, Hans-Eric, is just to be faithful, just to be faithful and to live into all these things that God has for you. And the rest, it may get worse or it may get better, and if it gets better, praise God, and if it gets worse, then I trust, have to trust God even more, right? So some transformation has been happening in my life, which has been comforting, I guess to say. It's been comforting. And I, I would hope for that for you. If there's any concern that you have, or if there's any change that you need to make, or if there's something inside of you that has to change or break and be remade into something new, that this is what God does. This is his business. He rescues parties, you know? He makes things better. Now, I want to tell you one last thing about this miracle. The steward comes up to the groom. This is the, probably the best part of the story, the narrative at least. And he says this. He says, you've saved the best for last. You saved the best wine for last. That's usually backwards, right? Because you get everybody drunk on the good wine first, and then they're so drunk they don't notice that you're serving ripple at the end, right? You don't, but you're, you're like a backwards guy. And, of course, the wine had actually run out. And um, I think that's something else. There's another clue in here about what God does. 
Does he save the best Praise God. There's more better things in the future than there have been in the past. And that's the other thing that's also this week is you, if you ever become a preacher, and I hope some of you do, and it's not too late for anyone really, is that you preach to yourself. And as I was preparing this, I was like, oh yeah, God saves the best for last. Why do I have to be concerned about the world? What would the world be like if Jesus hadn't come? It'd be far worse than this, I'm sure. Despite all the mistakes that the church has made on an institutional level, this world is a better place because of the Christian faith. And I think it can only be better. God does save the best for last. But many terrible things are yet to happen. I have no doubt about that. So God saves the best for last. And there's, there's one final transformation, and I just want you to hear this. You can even look it up right now. John 12, 24. This is one of my favorite verses in all of John. He says this, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And he's talking about his own life, isn't he? He's saying, I, I have to go to the cross. I have to lay down my life. But I know that in dying... And being raised again, transforming death back into life, I will become the life of many, many people. And he was so right. So that's the best that he's saving for the last. His own life that he loses and the life he gives us. And he follows that up directly. If you look right there, he says, if you try to save your own life, you lose it. If you worry too much about what you have or how the world is going, You've already lost. But if you give up everything, then you'll truly gain everything back, your own life. So he transforms death into life. And I think this is the best for the last. The best final trans transformation that happened in John. I, actually, I, 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 there's like a scales here. On one side, transforming unbelief into belief, that's, that, weighs, that feels like a really good one. But the transformation of death into life feels very strong, too. And, and I don't know which one is better than the other. Maybe they're kind of the same thing. Think about that. That's for another time. He transforms death into life. And the older I get, the more this means to me. Because I'm closer to my own death. And he's going to transform even my own death into new life. So whatever your cares are, the world or your health, or a loved one who's suffering. Gosh, we had a lot of them today. Praise God that we can share these things with each other. God cares about these things. Jesus cares about these things. He stands ready to transform that care. And he's waiting. Because he wants to save the best for last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. Thank you that you transform unbelief into belief and death into life, and water into wine, and us into your disciples, and our cares and worries into joy in you. Amen.